You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. At this point in our journey, there is a healthy collection of objects in the fifth dimension that will affect your life in numerous different ways, depending on who you are, how you use them, and whether you are due some Twilight Zone cosmic justice. A camera that shows the future, a coin that allows you to read thoughts, and a dinner table fortune teller that will trap you in the town where it lives, if you let it, are just some of the objects we've encountered on our journey so far. So while the Twilight Zone isn't the only show to use objects like this as a catalyst for stories, the mystical Twilight Zone object has become so synonymous with the show that it's something that has been carried on in each of the revival series that followed the original. The 80s show had a mystical piano that took the player back in time. The 2000s show, a tape cassette recorder that could take someone five minutes back in time. And the 2019 show, a video camera that could rewind and take the user back in time too. And these are just some of the examples. But what about an object that could stop time? And who would the Twilight Zone gift such an item to? McNulty. McNulty here. Mr. Cooper would like to see you. Hear that? Did you hear that? Mr. Cooper would like to see McNulty. And do you know why Mr. Cooper would like to see McNulty? Because I have been feeding suggestions in that suggestion box for 11 months now. <laughs> Did I say suggestions? The wrong word. Suggestions any clod can make. But dynamic blueprints for the future only McNulty can make. You think about that now. He's waiting, McNulty. Eleven months of suggestions about to pay off. <laughs> Say, uh, wouldn't be interested in having dinner, would you? If I were starving to death and you were the last man on earth and it met my survival, I might be. But I'm not, you're not, and it doesn't. So drift, McNulty. Tonight, as you listen to the Twilight Zone podcast, you two will notice that the world around you will stand still as we journey into the fifth dimension to meet a man who is gifted a kind of a stopwatch. Submitted for your approval, or at least your analysis, one Patrick Thomas McNulty, who at age 41 is the biggest bore on earth. He holds a 10-year record for the most meaningless words spewed out during a coffee break. And it's very likely that as of this moment, he would have gone through life in precisely this manner, a dull, argumentative big mouth who sets back the art of conversation a thousand years. I say he very likely would have, except for something that will soon happen to him. Something that will considerably alter his existence and ours. Now you think about that now, because this is the Twilight Zone.
first broadcast on October 18, 1963, written by Rod Sailing but based on a story by Michael D. Rosenthal and directed by John Rich. So before we delve into our story tonight, we have just borne witness to a moment in history. For the last time in the history of the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling says the immortal words submitted for your approval. I have touched upon it before, but he did only say it in three of the show's opener narrations, and those were for Cavender is Coming, In Praise of Pip, and now a kind of a stopwatch. But since then, it has burned itself into pop culture so much that you would almost believe that he said it in every episode. But we, the faithful, know that that's not the case. But other than that, a pretty standard opening narration, but it's still nice to see Rod sailing away from that blank grey season 4 backdrop. But I'm still hoping for some great sailing in the scene stuff in season 5. Now I mentioned when I quoted the writer that there is also another writer's name in the mix. It's based on a story by Michael D. Rosenthal. So I wanted first of all to see whether this was based on a story that was published so maybe I could read it to you or at least compare the episode to it. But it turns out that this isn't the case and when you start to dig into who Michael Rosenthal actually was for a while you end up going round in circles. Now in the notes on Wikipedia and yes I know Wikipedia isn't always accurate but it's not a bad starting point sometimes. It says, The apparent source for this episode's plot was the book, The Girl, The Gold Watch and Everything by John D. MacDonald, which was published in December of 1962. And it goes on to say that apparently the only known source for that claim is an unpublished interview with Philip Jose Farmer, who claimed that as well as that, one of the Twilight Zone episodes, Mr. Garrity in the Graves, was based on one of his own short stories. Farmer reported that he corresponded with John D. MacDonald regarding the situation, but any litigation or any kind of process afterwards was unsuccessful. But overall, there is no evidence that a writer called Michael D. Rosenthal ever published any stories, and in fact, the only evidence of his existence is the credits to this episode of The Twilight Zone. So potentially this was a bit of a rabbit hole that I was going to go down, but thankfully a man who can always be relied upon for the facts, Martin Grams Jr. has the answer. Now I don't tend to listen to audio commentaries on Twilight Zone episodes before I do my podcast episode because it kind of feels like cheating, but I actually uncovered this by accident out there on the World Wide Web and Martin Grams Jr. says, in that audio commentary, that Michael D. Rosenthal did come up with the story, but for about three or four decades nobody knew who he was, and they actually thought it might be a pseudonym for a professional scriptwriter, possibly even sailing himself, but why he would do that, I don't know. But it turns out that Michael D. Rosenthal was actually a real person, and he was a student at the University of Wisconsin, and his teacher, Jerry McNeely, actually liked his idea so much that McNeely contacted his agent and pitched the idea. 
because McNeely was a television writer himself. So McNeely paid the student for the idea and then it was sold on to the Twilight Zone down the line, but McNeely didn't actually want credit for it. He wanted the credit to go to his student. In season five, we start to see that this is a season where new blood is coming in behind the camera. So new talent for a potential Twilight Zone future that never really happened. But for this particular episode, they actually went back to some old Twilight Zone directing talent in the shape of John Rich. And when you consider that the last episode that he directed was season two's A Most Unusual Camera, you can really see that his two Twilight Zone episodes share a lot of DNA. First off, just the rhythm of their titles, a kind of a stopwatch, a most unusual camera, and both are more light-hearted comedic episodes. Both feature a Twilight Zone item with a special power, one predicts the future, the other freezes time, so they are very similar indeed. But where did John Rich go after he left the fifth dimension? Well, this hard-working television director of the day carried on being a hard-working television director of many days to come. And by the time he retired from directing in 1999, he had a weighty 91 directing credits to his name. And remember, when I say credits, I mean different shows. And within those shows can be multiple episodes. For example, one of his credits is the 1980s sitcom Benson, and in that, he directed 43 episodes. And in the 70s, he directed 81 episodes of All in the Family. So television really was his bread and butter. And John was born in 1925 in Queens, New York, and after serving his country as a navigator in World War II, he returned to work in radio, and then worked his way into television. Now interestingly, he is not the only member of the family to work on the Twilight Zone. His brother David Lowell Rich directed one episode in season four, which was of late, I think, of Cliffordville. And though he retired in 1999, John Rich lived to a very respectable 86 years old, passing away in 2012. So I hope he enjoyed those well-deserved 13 years of retirement. And while not many people will hold up his two Twilight Zone episodes as solid gold classics, he did inject some fun into the fifth dimension. So John Rich, we salute you. So speaking of solid gold, McNulty has been putting ideas into his company's suggestion box. Ideas that he thinks are solid gold, but his employer does not. You see, the soldiers go into the water and they got these cans on the back of Cooper Corporation makes ladies' foundation garments. It doesn't have anything to do with hamburgers, hot dogs, tin cans, or national defense. And not one of your 340 suggestions, I repeat, not one of them has anything remotely to do with this company's product. Exactly why I want to talk to you, Mr. Cooper. The key to a successful modern business is diversification. You think about that now. I have thought about it. You're fired. <laughs> So after McNulty is fired, he heads to his local bar, not so much to drown his sorrows, but to bore the patrons with his inane babbling. So while he does that, 
I'll bore you with some inane babbling of my own concerning the origins of this story. So we heard Martin Grams Jr. furnish us with the facts earlier on that Jerry McNeely bought the idea for this episode from his student, Michael D. Rosenthal. But who was Jerry McNeely and just what did he buy to present to Rod Serling to develop? As I said earlier, apart from teaching at the University of Wisconsin, McNeely was also a television writer, who at this time was probably most famous for writing the television show Dr. Kildare. And he went on to work fairly regularly writing television shows and TV movies until 1990. And Martin Grams Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that McNeely presented the idea to a gentleman by the name of Jerome S. Siegel, who then wrote to Rod Serling. And he wrote, Dear Rod, the one-page idea which you see attached is such an arresting one that I am sending it to you directly. It, in its turn, was sent to me by Jerry McNeely, who writes a good many of the Kildare shows, and whose work on Studio One I believe you know. So the story idea that actually landed on Rod's desk went like this. An ineffectual man purchases a second-hand chronometer because he is always arriving late for work. One of the devices on the chronometer is a stopwatch, the mechanism for which is apparently broken. Accidentally, the man discovers how to make the stopwatch work, and when he punches the button, not only does a hand stop, but time as well. Everything in the world is suspended in frozen animation, except the man himself and the objects that he touches. When he punches the button again, time resumes. Frightened at first, gradually he gains confidence in using the device, playing harmless pranks on people who have been unkind to him in the past. For example, he stops time while his boss is at an important conference, goes in, and removes his boss's shirt, then starts time again. He becomes bolder and more self-assertive and eventually greedy. He conceives a plan to become wealthy by committing the perfect crime. He will stop time in New York, drive across the country, helping himself to gasoline and food on the way, rob several large California banks, return to New York, and start time again. The effect so far as the California bank is concerned, will be that the money simply vanished before everyone's eyes, and he can never be implicated because he can prove he was in New York all the time. The plan comes off without a hitch, but during the trip he becomes terribly upset at the loneliness of being the only moving thing in the world of statues. It preys on his mind, and several times he almost starts his watch just to be able to talk with someone. Therefore, he is tremendously relieved to see moving people again when it is over. Soon, however, he is making bigger plans to take over the world itself, and he sets methodically to the task. But on the verge of success, he drops his watch and the springs go winging off in every direction. He looks around horrified, he is condemned to live permanently in solitude among the statues. There is no way he can start time again. 
So this is quite interesting because Neely's pitch concerns a man whose character flaw is very time related. He's always late. So let's remember that because it's not something that Rod Serling carried over for McNulty. And he also simply says that this is an ineffectual man who simply bought the watch, presumably in a shop, we don't know. But in the episode, after having cleared out his local bar by boring everyone, McNulty gets his watch like this. Drink up, pal. What do you want to talk about? Want to talk about baseball? It's the great American sport, and I'm very happy that Abner Doubleday is so fit to invent it. <laughs> Cheers. To your health, friend. Down the hatch. And now to thank you for your generosity, I have something for you. It's a gift, a small remembrance of our friendship. Mm, what is it? It's a stopwatch, an old family heirloom. <laughs> what do you do with it? I mean, it doesn't keep time, it's just a stopwatch. That is a fact. But it is yours. You may have it. What will I do with it? Stopwatch. Well, someday you might own a racehorse. Or you might want to run the mile. Or launch an astronaut. Well, goodbye, old pal. Oh, E pluribus unum. McNulty comes by the watch by what seems to be a random occurrence where he buys a drink for a drunken man in a bar. And it's this that gets him rewarded with the watch. And it's not long before he finds out that this is not just any stopwatch. Done for the night, McNulty? Everybody's gone. You happy? You bought ten people to death. You emptied my place like it had a smallpox sign out there. Do me a favor, will you, McNulty? Whenever you get the thirst, go to some other bar. I don't feel much like going home. I've seen the movie on The Late Show. I've even seen the movie on The Late, Late Show. Sometimes I even wish I was married. Do you ever get that feeling? Joe? Joe, hey, why are you standing that way? Joe? Hey, Joe, say something. You look like you were frozen. All I was doing was telling you how bored I was, and then this, this crazy gleep gave me this watch, and I, I sat here and I pushed it. And that's another thing, McNulty. You make me nervous. First you come in here, you bore people to death, and then you make me nervous. I make you nervous. You know something, McNulty? You're the one guy that makes me wish to never repeal Prohibition. So the power of the watch is now revealed. It is a watch that seems to freeze time for everyone but McNulty. But we also get a rare glimpse of McNulty's character before he freezes time. He says that he's seen the movies that are going to be on television that night and sometimes he even wishes he was married. Now I think that McNulty is a guy whose mind seems to work a million miles an hour. He needs constant stimulation and because nobody else can really keep up with him he has to provide it himself. He doesn't want to go home because what is there to entertain him and who is there to talk to? So McNulty seems to be at the centre of a perfect storm of part loneliness, part having an overactive mind, and partly either being unwilling to listen to others or just having such an impatient mind that he can't sit and listen to people because if he did, he might just realise that actually people can be quite interesting and entertaining too. 
if he only took the time to listen. So while McNulty ponders what's going on with his time-freezing timepiece, let's meet the man who played him. Because this is a Twilight Zone where, really speaking, it's a one-man show, not to take anything away from the rest of the cast, but the spotlight is firmly on Richard Erdman as Patrick McNulty. Everyone else is really just there to bounce off him, so we have a lineup of perfectly respectable actors and actresses who, unless you know who they are, just seem to be quite nondescript TV actors. But there are a couple of people amongst them with some quite impressive careers, but as I said, this is the Richard Erdman show. And Richard was born in 1925 in Oklahoma, so would have been in his late 30s at this point. But he and his mother took a chance and moved to California when his high school teacher told him that he could make it in the movies. And that teacher turned out to be right, because before he'd even left his teenage years, Erdman was offered a contract from Warner Brothers. He paid his dues taking uncredited or small parts in the early 40s, but as the 50s came around, his roles started to become bigger, and he put the uncredited roles behind him. But the thing about Erdman is that he would take anything, whether it was a respectable Billy Wilder comedy like Stalag 17, or a part in TV comedy like Mr. Ed. Erdman would do it all, and before he ever entered the fifth dimension, he also had a part in the Rod Serling penned western Saddle the Wind, and Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Erdman said, I never met Rod Serling on the set of Saddle the Wind at MGM, but we both lived in Pacific Palisades and attended a number of charities. It was a fun script and a frantic shoot. I worked with John Rich many times previously, and he was a last-minute replacement, under the condition that I star in the lead, because, well, we worked well together. It was so frantic, and I had so many lines to remember that I recall we would shoot a scene, we would refer to the script, and shoot a few more lines, and then go back to the script again. And Edmund never really stuck around as a main player on any particular television show, preferring to just jump in for an episode or two here and there. But it was later in his life that he did several voices for animation, and he did numerous episodes of shows like Popeye and Son in 1987, or The Flintstones Kids in 1986. But it was actually his second-to-last role between 2009 and 2015 in the sitcom Community, where he notched up his most appearances when he played the mischievous oldster and lifelong student Leonard in 53 of the 110 episodes. So with an amazing 177 credits to his name and a career that spanned from 1944 to 2017, Richard Erdman truly was a hard-working actor for the ages, and he only left us in 2019, at the age of 93. But how is he in this? Well, Erdman was generally not cast as a leading man. The wise-cracking sidekick or the comic relief was his stock in trade. But I actually think he carries this episode very well. Whether the episode works or not, we'll get to that. But if it doesn't, it's not for Richard Erdman's lack of trying. 
and I actually enjoy him in this quite a bit. There's a reason that he got cast in comedy roles a lot, because he's good at comedy. So even if I don't find this episode laugh out loud funny, I find him amusing and that's all I'll say for now. It works. I push the button, I stop the watch, and I stop the world. So here we get a sequence with some stock footage clips being frozen in time to illustrate the power of the watch. A sequence that does seem to go on a little long. By the 56th second of this scene, which is how long it goes on for, I think we get the point. But if you think they showed a lot of things being stopped within those 56 seconds, Martin Grams Jr. lists 42 things that they considered using to show how the watch stopped time. Things like salmon jumping, square dancing, a large stamp press, monkey jumping from tree to tree, movie on TV screen with fast action, and the list goes on and on. But now that McNulty knows what his watch can do, what is he going to do with it? This is a man who thrives on having other people around him listen to him. What good are frozen people to McNulty? But apparently what he's going to do with it is take it to his previous employer. Listen, Coop. Coop! You can't afford to fire me this time because this time I've got more than suggestions. I've got the goods. You think about this now. You figure out how this little doojigger of a stopwatch works and you've got yourself a million bucks. McNulty, let me remind you. We make ladies' foundation garnets. Nothing else. Now, do you hear me? Nothing else. So I will give you 15 seconds to leave this room. Now, get out. So Sailing would have us believe that McNulty would take this stopwatch to his employer in order for them to figure out how it works. And this is an idea that the producer, Bert Granite, disagreed with. In unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. documented that Granite wrote to Sailing and said, I personally would stress recognition. I do not think for a moment McNulty would ever part with his stopwatch, nor permit it to be mass manufactured. When they ignore him, naturally, he puts the stopwatch to work. And I kind of have to side with Granite on this one because even McNulty must realise what chaos having numerous people having this power would cause. Or even at the very least, having other people have the power would mean that then he's not so unique. He hasn't got this unique item that he can tell people about. But I do see how rejection of some sort would cause McNulty to use a stopwatch for revenge, which he does in a very light way by moving some things around the office in a scene that superhero films would mimic years later with characters who are gifted with super speed. So when Granite wrote to Sailing and said I would personally stress recognition, I believed that he was talking about this scene. Hey Joe, Bluegee, all you guys, have I got something to show you? Well, that takes care of the game. This thing is so great you're not going to believe it. McNally, make it quick, huh? Oh, now listen, you just pay attention. Pay attention. With this little gizmo, I can stop trains, tanks, subways, anything. 
What about your mouth? <laughs> funny, funny. Listen, last night I was at the polo grounds, and right in the middle of Ron Hunt's slide into second base, I stopped the game. Oh. Yeah, I stopped the game. I left my seat, I ran down on the field, I grabbed second base, and I moved it ten feet. Come on. Yeah, then I went back up into the stands, sat down, and started the game again. And Hunt, instead of being out by ten feet, was safe. And the Mets went on to win the game, because Snyder doubled him home. And that's not the only thing I can stop with this watch. I can stop anything. Watch. So here's the thing that I think Bert Granite understood about the character. As I said, McNulty is a man who needs people to listen to him. So in a sense, freezing time is useless to him. All he can do is use it as a conversation piece, get recognition for having it. But the problem is, nobody is going to believe him because they can't experience it either. Now in the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickry writes... The one bright spot in a kind of stopwatch comes when McNulty, a man who loves to talk, realises the one major drawback in a watch that freezes people dead in their tracks. How about that, he says to himself. The greatest conversation piece in the world, and what does it do? It stops conversation. Well, you've done it again, McNulty. You emptied my place. You drive more guys out of saloons than carry nation. I get it. I get it. Of course you guys didn't see. You were frozen. I'm the only one who knows. I'm the only one. <laughs> How about that? The greatest conversation piece in the world. The greatest. And what does it do? It stops conversation. So this is what McNulty is all about. He doesn't want to listen to people. He wants people to listen to and take notice of him. Something that he then verbalizes to Joe the barman. Look at me. What are you, some kind of a sadist? You know what you're looking at? A jerk, a nut. You want to stop there or try for more on? Why do I want this thing? Why? Because I want a little notice, that's why. I'm not ashamed to admit that. And I'll tell you something else. When John D. Rockefeller steps out of a car, why do people want to shake his hand? I'll bite. Because he's loaded, that's why. Because he's got cash, loot, lettuce, kale, the old mazoo. That's why people want to shake John D. Rockefeller's hand. And when J.B. Morgan walks into a restaurant... J.P. Morgan walks into a restaurant, the head waiter breaks his back trying to get a table ready for him. You know why? I'll tell you why. I figured you would. Because he's loaded, that's why. (laughs) You think about that. And then you think about this. As of tomorrow evening... McNulty is going to be loaded. (laughs) Pellucci, take a good look at the old McNulty. The next time you see me, it'll be the new McNulty. Why don't you go the whole route and move to Honolulu? (laughs) Tomorrow, I'll be able to buy Honolulu. So there is the seed of an interesting idea here that McNulty is actually someone who has been gifted a Twilight Zone item that isn't any use to them at all. A reversal of sorts on the way that things usually play out. But call me old-fashioned, I kind of like how a Twilight Zone item usually seems like the thing that someone wants most, and it's their use or misuse of it that decides their fate. In this case, McNulty decides to get what he wants by using the watch to pull a bank heist, and in doing so, ends up breaking the stopwatch, cursing him to be permanently trapped in time. And he's almost Henry Bemis-like in his fate. Bemis has endless books that he wasn't able to read. McNulty has a captive audience 
who will never hear a word that he says. Hey, fellas. Look, I, I didn't mean it. Uh, I'll have it fixed. Oh, please, come on, wake up. Mr. Cooper? Mr. Cooper? Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. Please, understand. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Oh, no. Mr. Please, say something. Move. Oh, Charlie. Charlie, I'm sorry I bugged you. Charlie, move. Lady, what did you... Joe. Joe? Oh, Joe, say something. Do something. Move. Joe, insult me. I won't come here anymore. I, I, won't, I won't make noise. I won't drive people away. Honest, Joe. Move. I can't help feeling that a kind of stopwatch is one or two rewrites away from perhaps maybe not being a great Twilight Zone, but maybe one with more of a point. Mark Scott Zickrey in The Twilight Zone Companion calls it slapdash, and Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic makes mention of the fact that it was one of several scripts that Sailing was trying to get finished before he went on a four-week trip. So it does suggest that maybe there is an element of it being not quite finished. There are ideas circling around in this one that never completely gel. If you think back to the original treatment that I read you at the beginning of the show, we're presented with a man who is always late for things. And when he's given the gift of time, instead of using it to catch up with life and to start to actually be on time for things, he plans to use it to commit thefts and then ultimately wants to take over the world. So I think that idea is one half pretty by the book Twilight Zone, but the other half maybe a little bit over the top with the taking over of the world thing. The usual way of doing things is that a person is given a gift which gives them the opportunity to fix a flaw within themselves, but they become greedy and ultimately, that gift becomes a curse. So the over-the-top taking over the world thing is something that you would usually trust Rod Serling to take out in his adaptation of it, and that's something that he does do. But in the episode, McNulty is a man whose mind and mouth run at a million miles an hour. So there's potential here for the ability to stop time to have some point like making him miss the sound of other people's voices when time is stopped, instead of just running off his own mouth all the time. But that connective tissue never really seems to develop. McNulty himself says that he has the world's greatest conversation piece, but the irony is that it stops conversation. So again, that irony could have some point to it. He's a man who just wants people to listen to him, but he doesn't understand that the way to get there is not to just talk at people, but to listen to them as well, and to actually have something interesting to say, because conversation is a two-way street. Now the 80s Twilight Zone does a kind of loose remake of a kind of a stopwatch, with the episode A Little Peace and Quiet. In it, there is a housewife called Penny who is rushed off her feet without a moment to herself, and she digs up a pendant in a box from her garden and discovers that the pendant gives her the ability to stop time. So she uses the pendant 
more and more to give her the peace and quiet that she craves, but she also uses it to ignore warnings that seem to be building up in the background about escalating nuclear tensions between the USA and the USSR. So spoiler warning if you haven't seen it, maybe skip forward about a minute. Now the whole nuclear angle might seem a bit over the top as well, but it's actually a pretty good episode. There is a tangible point to it. Penny starts to become so enraptured with the free time that she now gets that she starts to neglect her family and not to cherish the time that she has with them. It's just so easy to freeze time and effectively turn them off. But the real test comes when a pair of campaigners against nuclear weapons come to her door and she ignores their warnings, using her powers to move them away from her house. So it's at this point that her character is tested. Is she worthy? She is a woman who is gifted time. What's she going to do with that time? Now she might not be able to stop a nuclear war, but has that gift made her so self-absorbed that she's not even going to try to do her part in it? And this is where Twilight's own poetic justice comes into play. Penny ends up freezing time when nuclear bombs are just about to land on US soil. So if she starts time again, the bombs will land, killing everyone. So now, like McNulty, she is trapped in frozen time. So the nuclear angle does seem a bit over the top now, but it was the 80s and the potential of nuclear war was a hot topic. But the point is, there was a point. When McNulty turns to crime and ends up breaking the watch and being stuck, frozen in time, it feels like a bit of an afterthought. As if the episode never really had an end and uh, really tied this up in a poetic way. Because at some point in the story, he needed to realise what he was missing by having the rest of the population frozen and either learn the lesson from that and become a better person or reject the lesson and use the watch for personal gain, only for it to all backfire. But the lesson needed to be there or it all just kind of seems like fluff, but it's only after the fact that he seems to get it. That said, it might seem like I'm pretty down on this episode, but I'm not. I actually find it to be quite enjoyable, and that's primarily to do with Richard Erdman as McNulty. I find him extremely entertaining to watch. In the pantheon of likeable Twilight Zone misfits that include Mr. Beavis or Agnes Grepp from Cavender is Coming, I find that I don't so much like McNulty because he is a very flawed character and he doesn't seem to have the heart of those characters, but I am entertained by him the most. So to me, a kind of a stopwatch is kind of a light and kind of an entertaining episode, and I'm okay with that. Mr. Patrick Thomas McNulty, who had a gift of time. He used it and he misused it, and now he's just been handed the bill. Tonight's tale of motion and McNulty in the Twilight Zone. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Did we miss our flight? Did we miss our flight to Nightmare at 20,000 feet? Well, in a manner of speaking, we did. Just a bit of backstory. 
Obviously, you know that last year there wasn't much in the way of Twilight Zone podcast being put out there. And the reason for that, there were several reasons, but during the whole COVID thing, as I've said before, uh, some people, it gave them more time for me, it gave me less. And then when you try and come back to something that you've done kind of semi-regularly, you wonder how you ever had the time to do it in the first place. So it has been a bit of a journey coming back. And the thing is about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, it's going to be a bit of a bumper episode. There's a lot that goes into that. So it's probably going to be maybe about an hour and a half, maybe more. And um, when that is your first show to come back to, I have to admit it became a bit of a mental block for me, you know? And I had to keep trying to go back to that and work on it but because it was a bit of a monster it, it just wasn't the best one to be going back to so I thought it's much preferable to start with something light like a kind of a stopwatch so I think what I'm going to do I need to get this momentum going again I'm going to do a kind of a stopwatch and I'm going to do whatever comes next and then return to nightmare at 20,000 feet and if it takes a bit longer at least I've got that momentum going you know so nightmare at 20,000 feet will happen uh, and I thank you for your patience but I think uh, podcasters like myself we've all got our lives away from the microphone and sometimes uh, that interferes with our lives in front of the microphone but I think we're in a good place and hopefully we'll get back on track soon so some people did actually send me some clips to use. I was going to play out Nightmare at 20,000 feet with some listener clips. So you still have time to do that if you want to send me anything in. You know, something of around three to five minutes. And I'll include that at the end of the show. And you can email those to Tom at the thetwilightzonepodcast.com. And I will use the ones that I've already been sent. Just a quick mention, because I am hopefully putting this episode out before the end of January... Now, you will remember that the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation did a Kickstarter in order to fund the statue for Rod Sailing in his hometown of Binghamton. Now, although it did have some success last time, it fell short. And the foundation has been working very hard uh, to raise a lot of those funds in a different way. And I think the Kickstarter is now really going to be, you know, part of the puzzle rather than the whole thing and i believe that that's starting on february 1st last i saw on their twitter that is going to be the case so keep an eye on the rod sailing memorial foundation social media feeds uh, my social media feeds at the twilight zone podcast and you will see links to the kickstarter if you want to put into that I also want to say a quick thank you to patrons of the show. In this time, there has been patrons who have come and gone, and I usually, you know, like to say thank you to the patrons who have jumped aboard here on the show, and I will get to that. But this one was really about just kind of getting this episode out and getting that momentum going again. So I will do your thank yous down the line, but thank you so much for your support over on Patreon. And if anyone else wants to join me there, then go to patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast where you will find podcasts about the other iterations of the twilight zone in the 80s and the 2000s 
episodes about Night Gallery, and many, many other things. So thankfully, we've now actually got an episode done. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, a gentleman of myriad talents and a story written especially for him. Mr. Mickey Rooney appears in The Last Night of a Jockey. He plays the role of a diminutive little man screaming for help in the bottom of a barrel. And the help he receives is unexpected and quite incredible. On the Twilight Zone, a cast of one, Mr. Mickey Rooney. I hope you'll be able to be with us. 